0: Welcome, everybody. Okay. <laughs> I'm Jim Green. My friend Ed will introduce ourselves properly in a minute. Um, but I, I just wanted to extend a proper and profound welcome by saying that I, I regard these days as, um, well, as sacred, but I regard them as, oh, we, we offer them in the spirit of a day retreat rather than a seminar or a workshop where we're going to scratch our heads and work things out i hope that we can meet ourselves and meet each other and more beyond that at the deepest level that we're capable of doing and that's what i mean by offering it as a as a retreat as a as a short day retreat so the invitation is to be here as fully to be pres- as fully present as you can be as we can be as we can be together and our the trust that we build between each other through our practice i i trust will will help us to do that so so bear that in mind that Given that, this silence that we share is absolutely key, is is foundational to our experience together today. So, you know, I may talk quite a lot, and so may Ed, and so may all of you. And we'll be chatting at lunchtime, but just be aware that whatever's being said, whatever's being exchanged, is actually living on, a, on the bed of silence that we create, that we discover together. So everything is happening on and within and through the sacred silence that we share. <coughs> and given that we're coming together with the starting question of who do you trust Just to remind you, that's the theme of the day. That's our starting point. I think it's very important that we make sure that we feel safe with each other, feel safe in ourselves. We're all carrying a lot of tender places. I know that because we've all lived a life. (laughs) We're all carrying a lot of tender places and possibly quite a few burdens as well. And so I'd encourage you and invite you to be, to make sure that you feel safe with yourself, safe with each other. And also that we need, we need to have confidence that if anything, this might not happen, but if anything very personal arises, that we can feel confident about confidentiality as well. That that's something that we will look after together. So I just wanted to flag those few things up just to kind of set the feeling for our day. Um, quick introduction. So my name's Jim Green and I've uh, I worked for many, many years in the mental health field with a whole bunch of different organisations locally and nationally. Uh, ended up making some television programmes related to mental health and doing some academic stuff with the Open University around mental health, and always working alongside uh, user organisations, people who used mental health services, who, um, who wanted to put their um, expert by experience agenda at the forefront. So I, I, um, that was what I always wanted to support. So I'm not working in mental health directly these days, I became an oblate of this meditation community. Uh, about eight years ago, I think. Um, I've, I'm indebted to Ed because he, 18 years ago, introduced me to the meditation community, to, to Lawrence Freeman, and I've been meditating with, with the community ever since. And Father John Mayne is on record as saying that the first 20 years are the most challenging. So, uh, I'm nearly there. (laughs) And um, I've got a bit of a cough, so forgive that. These days I'm spending my time uh, writing, most of the time, uh, currently writing a book on on meditation and depression, which I hope will be out in a, well, a year or two, I think it is. So, and I'm very happy to be um, part of whatever we do today you're all going to get a chance to introduce yourselves as well by the way but Ed would you like to let people
1: know who you are so welcome from myself uh, my name is Ed Gishta. I I've been a member of the meditation community I think for something like 30 years now wow. I stumbled across a book of Lawrence's on the South Bank second-hand book of his about 30 years ago and got in touch with the community when it still existed at Camden Hill Road. is quite a small community. Um, I used to work in IT and I've done various counselling trainings around that time. And One of the things I struggled with holding those two together was that whilst I felt that my heart was drawn to the can- world of counselling and therapy there was something about holding the unknowing of it all. You know, far from it being about having some profound insight, there's much more about staying with the not knowing and just allowing something new to arrive. Which is quite scary. And I think that always pushed me back to the world of IT, which was safer because you could have a system and it either worked or it didn't. Um, but latterly, I have made the plunge and I'm a a counselor and uh, an integrative child psychotherapist um, so most of my work is with children young people and I've worked in schools charities and more recently for the NHS but I, I've left the NHS recently and working privately um, and I also do some work with adults as well um,
0: Thanks, Ed. So we're going to. Today is going to be well unpredictable. I hope Uh, it's always good when it is. But our intention is to uh, we're going to both share some thoughts in in a couple of talks with you. We're going to do. We're going to offer some very uh, gentle and unthreatening body work. So maybe a little bit of walking meditation. Uh, There'll be opportunities for some exchanges and questions and reflections. uh, As much as needs to be asked, can be asked. Or there's always that other option when you're on a retreat of finding something difficult or uncomfortable or you're not quite getting it or you're possibly even enraged. That's, I've certainly had that experience myself. Uh, and there's always that moment when you can choose to actually sit with it and stay with it in the, in the course of the day. Maybe bring it to your practice. Or it may just be that you need to say, I've got something that I need to talk about and we can talk about it. So just feel what's, feel what's right at any point. <laughs> Come on in. You're welcome. Well done. <laughs> <Post-version>. <laughs> oh okay. Yeah. Uh, you've the only bit you've missed is me, Jim, and Ed it's saying nice saying who we are. So you'll never know. Left <laughs> to <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, but before we launch into that... Uh, oh! I just want to say that our main activity together is going to be the practice of silent meditation. That's, um, that's where the real work is done, in my experience. It's, and it's where the real play is done as well. It's playful work. It's, it's working play. That's how I understand meditation. So we will make sure that there's plenty of time for doing that. So I'm going to say, just share a few thoughts about trust. And try to begin, if not answering, but at least responding to that question that I think we put in, the, in our flyer. Um, How do questions around trust that we all have, how do they relate to the contemplative experience? I just want to start off by sharing with you one of my very favorite quotes from Shunryu Suzuki, who um, brought a, a, a Soto Zen Buddhist monk, who brought Zen, to the west to America he built he established the first Buddhist monastery outside of Asia it's been the 40s or 50s I guess he died in 1971 anyway his great saying one of his great sayings is that life is like getting on a boat which is about to set out to sea and sink (laughs) some pained looks. Life is like getting onto a boat which is about to set out to sea and sink. It sounds, at one level, terrible, (laughs) doesn't it? Uh, And it's meant to. And immediately, we think, oh, what does that say about trust? (laughs) There's nothing... There's nothing that we can trust. We're on a boat that's going out to sea and it's going to sink. But this was said by a great leading practitioner of, of Zed, a practice, of a, world, a way of being, which is joyous, playful, compassionate, and hopeful. So. To me it kind of summarises the question that confronts each one of us. In the face of that, we're already on the boat and it's already sinking, by the way. How do we remain joyously undefended in the full knowledge of that? Well, I hope we can find out a little bit more about that in the course of the day. It's a fairly, it's a fairly big question, isn't it? But it's it's the question that we're living with, so that's what I'd just like to drop in, to start with. Um, and I, <coughs> yes, I'd like to tell you a little story from my recent past as well, which relates to trust. I'm a very uh, keen cricket follower. I have been since I was ten. So I've been to a couple of test matches this summer. I think it was last month, early August, my partner Jan, who happily is just as keen on cricket as I am, we decided that we would go to, uh, to the test match at Old Trafford, which is in Manchester. This is kind of spur of the uh, moment decision, we, so it involved driving very early in the morning from Aberystwyth, in wild west Wales, to Manchester, which is its a fair old hike, it's about a three hour drive, we had to get up very early, it was rainy. So we arrived in Manchester, which I know from you know, my distant past, I grew up, grew up in the north. And, but we were, like good citizens, we were following the signs the official AA signs, totally to be trusted, uh, to the official parking, to the official secure parking. And suddenly the signs disappeared. I'm sure you've all been in this situation. Panic sets in, because the match was about to start. We weren't finding the parking. And suddenly we were lost in a part of Manchester that... I didn't know. and In fact, I just don't know Manchester anymore because it's changed so much. So this was a bit desperate. I mean, not in the final scheme of things, but it was just a bit desperate <laughs> in, that, in that moment. And suddenly I saw a sign, a rather battered sign, which said, Lancashire County Cricket Club official parking here. So just, oh, right, come on, let's go, let's do this. Pulled in. And then I suddenly realised that this, this, this was parking for about five cars and it was outside a rather shoddy looking warehouse that wasn't being used. And then this guy came up to me and and I have to be honest with you, I just, I just didn't like the cut of his jib. You know, I just thought, mm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about this guy. And I said, uh, Mr. Naive, I said, is this official? You know, because it said it was official. He said, oh, yeah, mate, yeah, I've been here four days, I've been here four days. Um, only he said it in a Manchester accent. Uh, <laughs> I've been here four days, uh, do you think he's going to be on tomorrow again? You know, so he sort of involved me in this. I said, uh, yeah, although we might win today, but... And, it, and I just thought, I had a million things going on. Do I, do I trust this guy? Uh, do I trust this is official parking? Um, should the crickets about to start? No, so the cricket was became paramount. I paid my ten pounds, park the car there, and well, as you glean, I felt a bit uneasy about the whole situation. So I did, I did what we all, well, I think what quite a few of us do these days, utterly pointlessly. I took a photograph. <laughs> I took a photograph of where my car was parked. Um, I thought, hmm, I'll take two photographs. You know, that's, <laughs> that's how uneasy I was. And then it's about a 20-minute walk to the ground, full of anxiety. <clears throat> you know, is the car going to be stolen? Is it going to be towed away? Mm. All kinds of things. And this is going to spoil the... This is going to spoil my enjoyment of the, of the day. Mm-hmm. So put it all to one side. England won just as an aside uh, on that Sunday. And then we as we started to walk back to the car, of course my anxiety kicked right back in. Is the car going to be there? Jan saying, just stop worrying. Arrived at where I'd parked the car, and the car was there. The car was there and completely untouched, everything was fine. And Jan, of course, was saying, See, just trust, it's okay, just trust. (laughs) I opened the boot and I found it in complete disarray. And I said, "Did, Did you have your camera with you? No. What had happened is that somebody somehow had managed to get into the boot. And for some, I should take this up with VW, but the alarm didn't go off. Or maybe it did go off and alarms are just ignored in Manchester these days, I don't know. I keep looking at Ed because he was born in Manchester. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, so Jam's camera, a very nice it, um, camera was stolen. Nothing else went, actually. But, I mean, I just tell you the story because there was a whole kind of uh, circus going on for me Mm -hmm. about trust. Should I have trusted my instincts? Mm -hmm. um, Or should I have trusted, you know, the the secondary, another instinct, which is say, don't be so unfair to this guy. Mm -hmm. You know, he's he's just a guy. And it's, you know it's a perfectly reasonable parking place so stop being so anxious or, or the bigger picture, just trust that it's all going to be alright anyway which it sort of was I mean, a million things worse happen all the time than a camera being stolen but there was that sense of um, you know, anybody who's ever had anything stolen will there's, there's a kind of deep sense of betrayal you know, invasion and I just thought, oh Actually, the last time it happened was, was the last time, last time my car was broken into. It was the last time I was in Ireland. And it, I, it's kind of... This is ridiculous, but it's coloured my attitude to Ireland, which is nonsensical. But now I've included Manchester <laughs> <laughs> in the list.
1: Mm.
0: So, trust is... Oh! Yeah, the, the sort of extra sense that we were going to meet Jan's sister the next day to celebrate her birthday. When we were in the hotel that night, we discovered that the present, the birthday present for Jan's sister had been opened. It was a book and just not stolen. And I found, you know, what, what book would they have stolen? <laughs> and the card had been opened. I guess this is, money. there's money, money inside it. Somebody needs to come in. <coughs> Hello. Welcome. Anyway, I just shared that because it's a, a recent... Event. And it, you know, it just took a little, bit of, uh, a little bit of getting over, and it just reminded me, I'm sure you all have any number of Story. stories that could be told like that. Um, it just reminded me of how trust is at play in our lives all the time, in all kinds of levels, all kinds of levels. So our question, who do you trust, that we start with today? is in many ways the most basic human question. That's what we are carrying around all the time in all of our interactions. I mean, you had to do it a little, a little bit when you spoke to somebody you hadn't spoken before. You know, you're exploring, how safe do I feel? How much of myself can be here? And that's an absolutely foundational human question right from the word go. Who am I safe with? Am I secure? How can I can I survive in extreme situations? Which are all too common. And so that's at the private level. I think there's a massive question running. And we know, I think, that from our own painful experiences that some, some of us are, are wounded or are let down in some way, betrayed in some way, possibly at a very early part stage of our lives, or at any stage in our lives, but sometimes very damagingly at early times in our lives. And that threatens our capacity to trust for the rest of our lives how can we trust after something so catastrophic has happened so early and that's something I think that's something that we're all dealing with and some much more painfully and heroically than others so that's at this private level, this personal level of of trust and at the shared public level um a glance at the news, or just a quick survey of recent history, and it just kind of looks like trust has had its day, doesn't it? Um, I, I was making some notes a few days ago, and I just kind of looked at the news, and I thought, OK, um, here's my little list. You know, do we trust public spaces? Well, that's in, with, with the swelling wave of terrorist attacks living in a city like this. Do we trust the physical space that we're in, shared space? Do we, do we trust being on the tube? That's something that millions of Londoners have to ask themselves.
1: Mm.
0: And that person that you see on the tube. Mm. Uh, and you know, to name some names, do we, do we trust Kim Jong-un? Do we trust, yes. Do we trust the President of the United States? A lot of you, you may have spoken for know. all of us by shaking your head there. And so the list went on. Europe, bankers, politicians, priests and spiritual leaders. Possibly even people leading retreats. Teachers, doctors, the the media, the Olympic Committee, FIFA. I mean, just widespread corruption. Referees. So we could spend all day trading ideas of ever more untrustworthy groups of professionals. So... It would be easy to end up in this kind of hopeless, closed down, defended position where we answer that, who do you trust, well, nobody. Who who can we trust, given the evidence? So that position is is a dangerous one, clearly, where we shut down and we say no one. And the, it's kind of, a, the, or the accompanying, um, the footnote to that might be just trust yourself, only trust yourself. I was actually, you may have heard very, very gently that it was a Bob Dylan song was playing when some of you came in called Trust Yourself. And he says, um, I, I always go to the to the great contemporary prophets. Mm -hmm. uh, With questions like this, Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen. Yeah, in his song, Trust Yourself, he says, don't trust me to show you the truth. I I won't do my famous Bob Dylan impression. (laughs) When the truth truth may be only ashes and dust, if you need somebody you can trust, trust yourself. And it's, I I think elsewhere in the song he says, so you won't be hurt when people let you down. It's, that's a description of this very embattled self as fortress. I'm, I've got this enclosed space myself, and I, that's where I trust. And the, the other track which came after that was Leonard Cohen, and in that in that song, he says, "I don't trust my inner feelings. Inner feelings come and go." But so in that in that couplet, he just kind of gets the whole um, human dilemma of impermanence, and uh, well, it's it's the central Buddhist insight of impermanence that things move. Our transitory, cannot be relied on, especially, some might say, our feelings. It's, it's, for me, when I, when I hear that, when I revisit that, um, that insight about impermanence and unsatisfactoriness, that there is nothing that we can rely on, it, it always brings that echo of when, what St. Augustine says, Our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. The the Christian echo, the Christian um, response in some way to that sense of impermanence. So this position of nothing can be trusted. Nothing can be trusted. But But just listen to that and we'll come back to it later on, maybe later in the day. There's a double... There's a double meaning. Or I like to hear a double meaning in that. Nothing can be trusted as a negative. You can also hear it as a positive. What you can trust is no thing. Just put that behind your ear for later on. We'll, we'll, we'll revisit that. And I think it's what we're experiencing in meditation. If, so if we really listen to that... Um, Instruction, Bobby Dylan's instruction: Trust yourself. It poses another deeper transformative question, which is, what is this self? What is the self? Who are you? Who who is the who in who you can trust? So I just want to leave that thought with you, that we can, we can hear this question, who do you trust in two ways, firstly as this rhetorical question with the implied answer, nobody, or, or at the very least with a, with a warning that you have to be very selective, you have to be very careful about where your trust is placed. So we can either hear it that way, or we can hear it, and I hope that today's retreat will invite us towards this second way of hearing the question. We can, we can ask that question, who do you trust, with a deep and patient curiosity about who or what, if you like, who or what is this? that I am trusting, despite everything? I think those are the two, the two most obvious ways we can take that question. With a sort of knee-jerk, reactive, well, nobody, or I'm just going to be very, very careful. Or, who is this? What is this self that I do find myself trusting Despite everything, despite the sinking of the boat. <coughs> so, being very careful, that position where a kind of default position that we're all in, that we all find ourselves in, being very careful about. Who we trust, who we don't trust, what we put our trust in. That connects, if I can just go back to the the Buddha's central insights again. The Buddha tells us that our behaviour, which results in our suffering, comes from our addiction to aversion and desire, grasping and pushing away. I like this, I don't like this, I want this, I don't want this, I trust this, I don't trust this. That's the kind of dialectic that we, that we get stuck in, that we human beings get stuck in. And it's how we... The extent to which this person, this identity, this behaviour, um, this substance, the extent to which that can reinforce my sense of safety, you know, my sense of security, my sense of self. That's how, that's how we evaluate the trustworthiness of anything. That's a position that we can get fixed into. And it works to a point, you know, we, we have to kind of construct a working self. But what we're protecting when we're being very selective And it's happening all the time, by the way. It's not a conscious thing. It's a conscious thing, it's a semi-conscious thing, it's an unconscious thing. That's our position of preferring this to that, feeling safe with that person, feeling safe with this community, whatever it is. We're being selective. And that's the functions of... Well, some people want to call it the false self or the ego. I don't particularly like it. I've come not to like those... Terms they, they have some baggage, I think. And I prefer to say that that's the, that's the functioning of the limited self. The one that's dictated by our choices about what we value, what we trust and what we don't trust. The one that's very careful. And it's fine. I mean, it's re- the limited self is real. But if, if we take it for, to be everything... That's when we're in trouble. And the Buddha, of course, he encourages us to develop a very different kind of mind. One which goes, which escapes from the limits of the limited self. That's that's the main teaching of the Buddha. It's the main teaching of Jesus. It's the main teaching of all of the wisdom traditions to break free from that limited I like this, I don't like this, I'm safe with this, I'm not safe with this, I trust this, I don't trust this, to go beyond that. Which the Buddha describes that state of being as nirvana, which isn't some kind of you know, Shangri-La never-never land. It's, it's a very specific state of being, state of consciousness. Well, nirvana literally means blown out. Where those fires of selection, just to say it again, I prefer this to that, that's good, that's not good, those raging fires are extinguished and we are no longer controlled and limited by those. Because then everything is trustworthy, everything is trusted. And the, the very question of trust is quite gone. Um, now, I, I come from, uh, I live in Norwich. So I just want to say a little bit about Julian of Norwich. I don't know if people are familiar with... It. Yeah, quite a lot of nodding. So um, a 14th and 15th century English woman, a contemplative, a mystic, who had a life threatening illness, and accompanying that, a set of revelations, showings of Christ and of God's love, which she recorded in a, the first book written by a woman in English. Another first for Norwich. For that. <laughs> Not the last first. Um, she, in in her revelations of divine love, she writes this, which I think is, in a way, it's her take on what the Buddha is talking about when he talks about that extinguishing of our raging desire to select and to prefer. And to be choosy about where we trust or when we trust. In her second revelation, Julian says this. And I think if we really get this, by the way, it's just a few lines which I'll read to you. If we really get this, if this speaks to us as much as it spoke to her, this is a real game changer. So... She says, God wills that we believe that we experience him constantly although we imagine that it is but little. And by this belief he causes us evermore to gain grace because he wishes to be seen and he wishes to be sought. He wishes to be awaited and he wishes to be trusted. He wishes to be seen, he wishes to be sought, he wishes to be awaited, and he wishes to be trusted. And the utterly central word there, they're all central, but is is that she says constantly. God wills us to believe that that is happening all the time. This moment and this moment and this moment. And no matter how much distrust of the Manchester parking attendant or Kim Jong-un, I might actually be experiencing at that moment. But that God's loving accompaniment is there in that and, and in every moment that's the that's why I say that if we if we have the grace to actually fully experience that it's a game changer because at that level of relationship because it's it's not just the observation of a fact about the world it's in fact that we are constantly to use Julian's word we are constantly in that relationship of loving presence than which there is nothing more trustworthy and so we don't need to be selective anymore we don't need to come from those limiting choices. So what Julian's showing, her revelation and her sharing of it with us, is is, I think, I feel it, as the supreme challenge to the limited self, to our limited selves and to our Understandable because we're frightened wounded beings but our, our insistence on coming from that on living from that place um, just, just a little aside here about belief and trust because in, in that passage from Julian those two words uh, crop up she said God wills that we believe that we experience him and by this belief he causes us to gain grace and she finishes he wishes to be trusted there's there's a, there's, there's a very big and helpful distinction to be made between belief on the one hand and trust on the other and I would actually commend to you this book if you haven't read it, um, Tokens of Trust, the clue is kind of in the title, by Rowan Williams, a great friend of, the, uh, of our meditation community, currently Master of Magdalen College, Cambridge, but previously uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, as I'm sure you know. Um, it's a very fine book, and he explores questions of trust in that, and makes the point, which has often been made, but I think it's worth making it again, that we can say we believe in God or we believe in the power of Jesus Christ, but Rowan points out that far too often it's a bit like saying, I believe in UFOs or I believe in the Loch Ness Monster. It's kind of like it's a proposition about the world and, a, and not a very active one. Whereas, I'm not sure how many people say this, but you know I trust in UFOs or I trust in the Loch Ness Monster. I don't think anybody does say that. Well, I, ho- I hope they don't. Anyway. Um, because, it's, because it's a completely different dynamic, isn't it? Can you feel that? That it's... As a, it's not, a, kind of, it's not a, um, a position statement that I assert that these things exist or that God exists but I trust in is a personal commitment it's a risk, it's a relationship it's completely different and Rowan actually points out the rather wonderful um, thing that, that Buddhists say I take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha, the, in, in the Buddha, the teaching and the community. And, it's a, and, and and Rowan says it would be lovely if Christians said the credo in that way, because it's a much more committing, personal, dynamic, risky, um, existential gesture. This is where I put my trust. Rather than God, UFOs, and Loch Ness monsters exist. There's a quote from that book, which I, in, in a way, this is probably all I needed to read to you. There's a, a very wonderful paragraph that Rowan has there, and he. Um, so, let me just share it with you while we're talking about that book. At the heart of the desperate suffering there is in the world. Actually, this is his version of the uh, life is like getting on a boat which is about to go to sea and sink. I've just realised. At the heart of the desperate suffering there is in the world, suffering we can do nothing to resolve or remove for good. There is an indestructible energy making for love. An indestructible energy making for love. If we have grasped what Jesus is about, we can trust, there's that word again, we can trust that this is what lies at the foundation of everything. Everything. Can't quite remember what time I'm supposed to be finishing. Are we okay for a few minutes? Are we are. Yeah. Okay, well, I just want to say We've been talking about that that clear space beyond the limited self. Where supreme trust is at play. The Buddha is pointed towards it. We've heard Julian talking about it. We've heard Rowan Williams' version of it. (coughs) And I just want to bring us to Jesus, the teaching of Jesus on that, which is his teaching on the kingdom because that's what the kingdom is, the place of supreme trust. And in many ways, Jesus' clearest teaching on this, apart from his entire life and his death, and that, that very pithy instruction which we follow in meditation to leave self behind, Apart from that, his clearest teaching, I think, comes in the farewell discourses when he's saying goodbye to his disciples, um, as recorded in the Gospel of John, where he says to his disciples in the upper room, this is some of my very favourite words in the Gospel, I think because it uses one of my favourite words. Jesus didn't use it because it's an English word, dwell. He was speaking Aramaic and in the gospel it would have been in Greek. But you remember he says to his disciples in John chapter 15, and this is his key instruction, dwell in my love. That's it. Dwell in my love. Although he goes on to say, as I have heeded my father's commands and dwell in his love. What he's telling us is that that dwelling, you hear that in both, in both senses, that, that remaining in that place, that is our home. It's where we can abide and it's the place that we can trust. And it, so Jesus is telling us, telling his disciples and telling us that that's how we put on the mind of Christ, dwelling in his love. That's how we put on the trusting mind of Christ. And it's how we um, deal with the inevitable series of betrayals that life is. I mean, we started with the boat going out to sea and sinking. John Maine, who is one of our great teachers, Lawrence Freeman's teacher, one of the founding presidents of this meditation community, one of John Maine's celebrated statements is that all Christian education, in fact all education, is a preparation for the experience of betrayal and whenever I've shared that with people, people there's often been a kind of betrayal, that's a bit strong isn't it you know, are we all going to be betrayed, well in one fundamental sense yes, everything that we put on that we rely on is going to let us down It's going to end our bodies, our, uh, our relationships, our, and we have no abiding city. It's, it's all going to crumble. So that betrayal is, in one sense, at the heart of the human experience. And, of course, after the farewell discourses, when Jesus has said goodbye, his followers he then shows us he shows them and shows us how how to be with that betrayal it's in the garden of Gethsemane on the cross that is a world of nothing but betrayal nothing but betrayal and suffering so if we want to learn how to be with that that's the experience that we gaze upon that we sit with because we see on the cross Jesus trusting I think what he no longer even understands I'll finish quite soon just to say that I don't want to set up a kind of false opposition between um, the limited self, the false self, the ego, whatever we might call it, and this other consciousness where we are at one in nirvana, where we are um, thoroughly expanded... And transformed and in a state of blissful trust. Uh, It can that can just be another project of the ego to say, hey, let's let's swap the limited self for a much kind of holier and more sort of bulletproof self. Let's let's abandon the little self and go to the go to the holy contemplative self. We need to watch out for. That as just another way of protecting what is in fact the limit itself. We um, in other words, we don't need to abandon or deny our wounds the suffering that we've experienced, which which has caused us to be un- distrusting. To be to be making uh, selections all the time it's our it's our wounds are, the, are are the route that we take to the kingdom we don't just see the kingdom and jump straight in there our, our wounds and our suffering if we can sit with them together can take us there and I just I see Jesus telling us that in the, um, in the Sermon on the Mount, the, the Beatitudes. You remember he, he tells us who, who, is, who is blessed, who is blessed. And I hear that as who is to be trusted. And do you remember who is blessed? The poor, the sorrowful, the gentle... The hungry and thirsty, and the persecuted, amongst others. Now that is referring to the marginalised and the oppressed of the world. But if we if we hear that, if we hear the Beatitudes from a contemplative perspective, (coughs) it's not just the marginalised and the oppressed and the denied. Of the world, but it's also the marginalized, denied, and oppressed part of ourselves. And the spectacular message there is that those very parts of ourselves that we would rather deny and feel shame about, that's the very root. If we can stay with them and sit with them. That they can lead us back to the kingdom. Well, um, the question is, how do we, how do, we do that? I've, I've pointed a finger in a few directions. How do we do that? How do we follow in Jesus and Buddha's footsteps? How do we share in the insight of Mother Julian? How do we learn to trust again? And I, I just want to emphasise that word again. Uh, I don't use it lightly. I could have said, how do we learn to trust? But actually, I want to say how do we learn to trust again? And I say it because I'm completely persuaded by um, an insight offered by Simone Weil. I don't know if you know her work, Jewish Christian mystic um, philosopher who died during the second world war but she is she she offers the insight that we come into the world trusting that's what our default setting is we come expecting to be cared for to be met to be nurtured to be loved. And that's very convincing in a way, because the, the proof of that, she says, is that we recoil in shock and trauma when that doesn't happen. And so it, it kind of demonstrates that that is the our original um, setting, our, our original blessings that we come. Somehow knowing that that is the nature of reality at its deepest level that we should be met that we will be met with trust that we can trust that we'll be met with love and care so she says she describes it as the expectation that we carry with us all through our lives that good will be done to us so it never quite goes away as a maybe we've had a terrible time and maybe we've apparently lost all capacity to trust and to engage and be in a relationship. But I love the fact that she suggests that there's maybe just that tiny seed, that mustard seed, that molecule of trust, so that's why I say how can we learn to trust again, again. Well, my answer is that meditation helps us to do that. And it's a very practical exercise that we can do together for ourselves. And I'm not going to really say anything about it. I may say a bit more this afternoon. But only to say that in meditation we suspend the actions of that limited selecting self Mm. that governs us. At the time of our meditation we put that into suspension and we make ourselves available for something quite other. Mm. And in fact we start to trust in nothing but now heard as no thing. C'est de fruit.